I'm just going to read the two verses which we are dealing with and started to look at the week before last. 3 and 4. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's read that again. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and delivered to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And if you remember, uh, last time we uh, we looked at the essential deity of Christ. As Paul, without apology, introduces Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And then uh, we looked at this great humiliating step that he took from Godhead to humanity, from the throne to the manger, and then to the cross. What a, an humiliating journey that must have been for him. You know, if only we could understand what Godhead is and realize just how far a step that he took to clothe himself in humanity. You know, when all we can do is look at the word and all we can do is imagine uh, what it might have uh, been. But we can surely say that it was humiliating, to say the least, as he took upon himself the flesh of the creature that he had uh, recently created. You know, and then he took that uh, humanity, or we looked as he took that humanity at the root uh, that uh, he came from the promises of Genesis well the, the, the plans of eternity I suppose first the promises of, Ge- of Genesis and through the Old, Te- the Old Testament we can see that uh, his humanity is rooted in the line of David in the tribe of Judah and in the family of Abraham and that was wonderful uh, if you're a Jew, of course, it's wonderful to, to think that the, uh, the, the lineage of Messiah stops at Abraham and uh, sort of envelops everything into the, the, the land of the Jews and the tribe of the Jews. And yet, thanks to Luke, as we saw, Luke's account, we were able to take that pedigree back even further than David, further uh, than Abraham, right back to Adam, which, of course, would make... The, the ministry of Christ and his influence um, and his victory over sin and death universal which includes you and I that we are not some afterthought uh, we are not some outsiders looking in through the window to see if we can see things what's going on we are a part of the initial plan of God to redeem to himself people from every tribe every nation and every tongue it wasn't only about the Jews no the Jews were the vehicle to bring God in the flesh but the purpose for God in the flesh is that you and I might come to know him as saviour that you and I may populate eternity with him and be forever with the Lord from every tribe tongue and nation you want the, the final sentence of Luke's uh, genealogy brings us right back full circle 
from where we started. I said at the beginning that He's introduced us to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He told us that He's gone through David and through Abraham. Luke has told us that He's gone through Adam. But then the last line, the Son of Adam, the Son of God. So that's the full circle. That this person is God indeed. You know, and our main theme last time was to concentrate on his humanity. To remember. Now I said something already tonight that would raise the hackles of any self-respecting opponent of the Christian faith. I said that Paul, without apology, introduces Jesus as the Son of God. Now can he really do that? Is that right for him to do such a thing? Should he, without any apology or with any qualifying remark, just call Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? You know, and I know that last, last time we spent uh, our time tracing the identity of Messiah through the different stages of the Old Testament lineage. But to just throw in that he's God as well. Can he do that? We've looked at his humanity. We've seen how he got here. But can Paul really just say he's God? Would that go beyond the pale for an awful lot of people? I know it would go beyond the pale for Jehovah's Witnesses. It would go beyond the pale for Mormons. It would go on the, beyond the pale for Muslims. For Hindus and for your average um, atheist, that is abroad and humanist. Yet Paul just says it. So confident is he that he says it, you know, and from this pulpit, every preacher that stands here, whether it's a Sunday night or a Sunday morning or whatever, every one of us will get up and say, Jesus is our God. We sing it. We give him the highest honour as being our God. Without apology. Without qualifying the remarks that we make. And sometimes I wonder if people think we've gone beyond the pale. We've gone too far. You're going too far with your Christianity. Going too far with your faith. I wonder if Paul thought that as well when he, he sat down and thought, Can I say that? Am I able to say that he's God? You know, and therefore... He gives us his reasons for believing that he's God. I want you to notice that. He gives us his reasons for believing that he's God. And this is what he says. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. How can you be so sure that Jesus is God, Paul. How can you stay? You come out with it. You know, in this book of Romans where Caesar would think that he was God. That there were other emperors that would think that they are God. How can you be so sure? You know, it didn't take Paul too long to come to this staggering conclusion that Jesus is God. Do you know that one moment in time, Paul was convinced that Jesus was the biggest imposter on the planet? 
He hated him. He set about to destroy him, to drag his name through the, the, the muck, because he saw him as an imposter. Someone who had come to try to destroy the Jewish religion. And he was doing a, such a good job of it, that Paul decided that he would become the barrier to the ongoing flow of Christianity. And of course, I, we know that that's what he was about when he was on the road to Damascus. Because the next minute, it says this in the scriptures, immediately, immediately, straight away, at once, he preached the Christ in the synagogues. Now what is Paul going to know about Jesus? You know, I suppose that we've all at the start somewhere preaching. You know, and, um, when I was uh, starting uh, preaching in the bush, um, I dare not preach on what Paul preached on first. I preached on Noah, you preach on Jonah, you preach on Peter. You know, and I preached on all the, the sort of the, the familiar stories of the Old Testament and the familiar stories of the New Testament. And you know, it wasn't until I understood what everything was about before I started to get down to the nitty gritty of who Jesus actually is. But it says immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, and this was his topic that he is. The Son of God. From imposter to the Son of God took moments for Paul to be convinced. So what had happened to so radically change his mind? How could he go from year to year in a split second? When it takes most people such a long journey to come from unbelief to belief. And especially in belief that Jesus is God. What has happened so that has so radically changed his mind? And I tell you what has happened. It's simple. He's met the risen Christ. That's all. That's all it took. Is that Paul in his flesh met the risen Christ. And that's what happened there on the Damascus road. He met up with Jesus. Jesus in the flesh. Jesus on the earth. And he realized that Jesus is God. Because here was a man that he knew expired on a cross of wood a number of years previously. And yet here he was in the flesh on the road to Damascus. And that amazing moment brought this realization that Jesus is God. Now what had proved it? Simply, it was the resurrection. The resurrection, in Paul's mind, proved that Jesus Christ was God. He didn't need any other proof whatsoever. He was convinced from that moment when he met the, the, the risen Christ. And uh, that image of Jesus on the earth, firmly etched on his heart, dissolved every vestige of doubt of opposition and of antagonism that Paul harbored in his heart and in his mind. You know, and it culminated, of course, in those wonderful words in Philippians 2. Was God became flesh. Was God became flesh. That was, that was I believe, the climax of Paul's revelation of Jesus. He was God. God in form. God in essence, God in character, 
God in reality and yet Paul saw him in the flesh after he had been slain upon the cross it, the convincing factor for Paul was the risen Christ now could there possibly remain any doubt whatsoever in his mind after that I've seen the risen Christ I've seen the risen Christ and that's why he could pen those words and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead it's great when you have a, a testimony it's great when you're writing from experience you know I thank God that I can preach from experience because I know Jesus Christ as my own personal saviour I've seen him the risen one and I believe that he is God because the same resurrection that convinced Paul convinces me so he can write from experience I can preach from experience and you can testify from experience that you too have met with the risen Christ how could there be any more doubt as that you know, and I wanted to note this straight away in this passage of scripture this little verse that we are looking at this word declared declared to be you know an announcement has been made a definition has been granted to us he is declared to be you know the actual word declared in the Greek means to set a boundary around something to set a fence around something now when me and Pauline go to the good food show in the NEC there's usually well every time you've been there anyway there's this huge area in the NEC that is fenced off you're not allowed inside the fence and in this fence you know it's I would say it's about two or three times larger than this than this room there's a fence around and inside the fence there are tables and tables and tables of cheese you know it's the worst fence in the world the worst fence in the world because you know the smell that comes from the cheese and you could look at it and see all the different types and colors and textures and they're all there sitting on the tables inside the fence you know, and these cheeses are the best cheeses that have ever been made in Britain. They're there to be judged as the best. There's going to be uh, a judging. That's why you're not allowed to go in and touch anything because the judges go there on a certain day. I can't remember which day it is. And they walk around and they taste and they look and they touch and they work out which is the best. But these are the best that men have, pro have uh, provided the best cheeses of all no if it's the best cheese it's in there no other cheeses are allowed no other cheeses anything inferior is not allowed inside that fence everything about that cheese is the best you know what it's the fence it's the actual fence itself that lets us know there's quality behind it. You know, they wouldn't put a fence around something that was mediocre or damaged. 
They put a fence around it because it was the best. And it's the actual existence of the fence that lets us know that there is quality lay that lay beyond it. Or we could say that it's the fence that declares the extreme quality of the cheese. You know, and that's how this word is used in this passage of scripture. Declared to be the Son of God. He's fenced in. He's separate from everyone else. No one else can go in there. Nothing inferior can go in there. Nothing that's damaged. Nothing that's sinful. Jesus is in there. In, inside this fence. And the very fence itself tells us that there's quality there. That there's perfection there. That there's deity there. You know, what is the fence? What is this fence that surrounds him, that speaks of his worth, and speaks of his standing? You know, the fence is the resurrection. It's the resurrection that has fenced Christ off from everyone else in history. No one else has experienced the resurrection like Jesus. Now, I know he is the first fruits. He is the forerunner. And you and I will experience that same resurrection power. And have done in our own new birth. But you is the one. And the resurrection proves exactly who he is. You know, it's no wonder that Paul goes on to say in the 10th chapter, if you remember, when he talks about um, coming to know the Lord, he says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. And believe in your heart that what? That God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. You see, being raised from the dead puts him in a class of his own. He is now unique in the eyes of men. He's always been unique in the eyes of God. He is the Son of God. And there is no one like him. But in the eyes of men, he was just a normal person walking around Palestine 2,000 years ago. Fell foul of the authorities and went to the cross and paid for his crimes. That was the uh, implication of um, or the understanding of the population around. But now, the resurrection has done something amazing. It has marked him off as unique. He is the unique Son of God. How do we know? Well, because He's been raised from the dead. And His resurrection proves and, um, and declares exactly who He is. So if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you want to be born again, if you want the gift of eternal life, then you believe that He's God. You look at Him, and you see the fence, the resurrection, and you think, this person is more than your average. This person is greater than your above average. He's unique. He's the Son of God. He's God Himself. Why? Well, because the resurrection is telling me that. The fence around Him is actually showing me that this person is transcendent above every other person that has ever walked the earth. The fence that sets him apart the fence that declares his deity it all focuses on the resurrection you see without that resurrection Jesus would have been a normal bloke 
a normal person walking normal Palestine doing normal things and dying and that's it because let's be honest dying is normal it happens to all of us you know what greatness is there in coming to the earth today no greatness at all it's sad, it's pathetic it's pointless but to be raised from the dead to overcome death to overcome hell and, and the grave and to rise again and walk the earth that once you was taken away from has got to set you apart has got to bring you up into a place where people would understand who you are the fence of the resurrection tells us that that person within it is the son of God it's all focused on the resurrection now there's a number of things there are a number of things that we need to know about this fence that we're looking at and firstly Jesus himself and Paul also refers to the fence the resurrection the fence in the Old Testament you know we remember the words of Jesus as he walked on the road to Emmaus as he rebukes his disciples for their unbelief and he says to them oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken and he goes on to say ought not the Christ to have suffered you know their main problem was that Jesus had died we thought this was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We thought we were, you know, we were on a, 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 um, a fast track to, uh, to royalty and victory. But he's gone, he's dead. He's dead, and that's what Jesus said. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter his glory? You know, and if that isn't a, a reference to the resurrection, then nothing is. You know, I'm beginning at Moses. And all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know, when Jesus was conscious that his story, as it was told in the Old Testament, included his death. You know, we can go to places like Psalm 22. We can go to Isaiah 53. And know that this Messiah, this Deliverer, this coming one, this chosen one, would somehow expire on a cross of wood. Crosses of wood weren't invented in the days of Psalm 22. You know, but the picture painted there is of crucifixion. You know, it wasn't even invented when Isaiah wrote uh, his um, prophet, uh, prophecy in 800 BC. It hadn't been invented. But the picture we see there is of a man expiring on a cross of wood. And Jesus said, Moses... The prophets and all the writers of the Old Testament, they testified of me and said that death will occur in his life. But also resurrection. Also resurrection. It's all there in the Old Testament. You know, Paul says something very similar when he penned that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I have delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now to Paul, the Scriptures are the Old Testament. 
You know, there was no such thing as the New Testament when Paul was writing his book. He was writing it. He couldn't have referred to it. He was actually writing it. And when you look at the dates, his epistles were around the first to be written. The Gospels were written after him. So he wasn't referring to some uh, verse in, the, in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. He wasn't referring to something that was written in Ephesians or Philippians. He was referring to the Old Testament. Where the death of Christ, the burial and the resurrection of Christ were firmly in place according to the scriptures. You know as we listen to uh, the giants of the New Testament, Christ himself and Paul himself, we can only conclude that the resurrection was a big part of the experience of Christ. You know, it's easy to see the experience uh, of, of this resurrection in stories like Isaac. Isaac is a typical example of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, so many things that are... Um, um, Similar in the stories. First of all, both have a three-day event. You know, when, when Abraham left uh, his, his servants and took Isaac with the wood and the fire and the, the knife, it was a three-day journey. You know, and in that three-day journey, Isaac was laid upon a, an altar, the knife was uh, raised aloft, and in grace, a ram was caught in a thicket, and a substitute came for Isaac. But when we go to uh, Hebrews, and we know this from our Hebrew studies, that figuratively, Isaac was slain on the altar. I'll read that to you from, um, from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, offered up Isaac, offered up Isaac, See, it's figurative in, in the New Testament. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. So we can see that um, in the eyes of God, Isaac expired on that um, lump of wood, or that but pile of wood and Abraham received him back from the dead in a figurative way and he went back to his uh, his servants he did say to me that he will, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and we will come back we will come back why? because there is a death and a resurrection which points firmly to this wonderful amazing event that took place on the Easter time. You know, we can also see the, the story or the uh, implication in the life of Joseph. You know, we've been privileged to look at the life of Joseph in our Bible and biscuits. And we, uh, when we started, it starts off with a blood-stained coat which destroys the heart of Jacob. This is your son's coat. This is your son's blood. You know, from that moment on, Jacob was destroyed. Until 21 years later, when those same messengers who brought the, the, the bloodstained coat to Jacob brought this wonderful message to him, Joseph is alive. Joseph is alive and he is the governor of all of Egypt. You know what the Bible says? That Jacob's heart stood still. 
because he could not believe them. No, we can see that there is a definite uh, resemblance to the wonderful acts of God because there is a bloodstained cross, there is a bloodstained hill, and there is a resurrection. There is an empty tomb and there is a glorious entry into heaven. Of course, you could also uh, look at Jonah and the whale, of course. As he goes down into the depths of hell itself, in the belly of the whale. In fact, he uses this, uh, this miracle or this incident with Jonah. Jesus himself uses it and says, Just as Noah went down into the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man go down into the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So we can definitely see that the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, have stories that paint the picture of death and resurrection as it appertains to the Son of God Himself. You know, of course, not only that, but we have David. David has got many hats. He's got a shepherd's hat. He's got a king's hat. He's got a psalmist's hat. But he's also got a prophet's hat. You know, there are times when he actually prophesies. And in one of his psalms, Psalm 16, of course it's the one that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. You know, and he says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption your Holy One who's that? this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased is Jesus pleased with anything less than total holiness? of course he's not is he pleased with you? in and of yourself? no it is the holiness of Christ that is upon you. It is the righteousness of Christ that is you are clothed in that brings pleasure to God. So who's he talking about? Well, Peter is convinced he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. So we have scriptural reason, firm scriptural reason to put this fence of the resurrection around the deity of Christ. Now you know as well as I do that the Jews today will not recognize the identity of Christ through any of those references. They can't. They can't. Paul tells us why. He said they've got a veil over their eyes. And when they read in the Old Testament they know it backwards, sidewards and everything else. They know it better than we do. But they don't see Jesus there at all because there's a veil over their eyes. And the veil is only lifted in Christ so a Jew who hasn't been born again will never ever recognize the identity of Christ through the Old Testament to them they speak of other things you know even Isaiah 53 has nothing at all to do with the Messiah it's all to do with Israel they say this is us we are going through all this agony and shame nothing to do with the Messiah it's only those who have received Christ as Savior that can see Jesus in Isaiah 53. They are too ambiguous and too vague. But we know, don't we, that actions speak louder than words. 
And Christ himself throughout his ministry applies such references to himself. You know, as we've already seen on the road to Emmaus. And also in reference to the unbelieving Jews, he says in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, he says, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which speak of me. Those scriptures that you were looking at, trying to find your way to God, they speak of me. And then he goes on and says, but you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. See, that's the problem with the Jews. They won't come to Christ. If they came to Christ, the Old Testament would open up like a flower. And now, they're as blind as bats, as far as the Old Testament is concerned. You know, when I think that um, where Jesus uh, gets down to the nitty-gritty for us is in Matthew chapter 12, where in response to the Jews wanting a sign, he says those words about Jonah. He says, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now to me, this is the reference to his resurrection which stuck with these Jews until after Christ, after his death. This is what affected them the most. Because here is Jesus saying unambiguously, I'm going to die. I'm going to remain in a tomb for three days. And then I'm coming back. And then I'm coming back. You can remember when these Jews in fear went to Pilate in between Good Friday or the Good Wednesday or whenever we're going to uh, place the, the, the crucifixion on the Sunday. They went to Pilate to arrange a seal and a guard over the tomb. You know, and how they describe their, their actions must point to this time when Jesus referred to his death and resurrection. And this is what they said. On the next day, following the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was alive how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Now that's unambiguous. The enemies of Jesus knew that he claimed to be God. They knew that he claimed to die and rise again. So all the identity of Jesus was wrapped up completely in the resurrection. After three days I will rise, he said. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, so that the last deception will be worse, worse than the first. You know, Jesus did say plainly to his disciples, and meant privately, privately, didn't say it out, as far as I can see from the scriptures. But can you remember when Jesus asked Peter to, uh, Who do men say that I am? And Peter said, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, This has been brought to you by the Father. And then he went on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, 
be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days, rise again. You know, and of course, these are the words that would um, reverberate with the people that you as a man who claimed to be God, and you as a man who claimed that he would die, if they would put him to death, then he would rise again on the third day. And if, and if of course, the uh, Bible students among us would know that uh, in reference to the destruction of the temple, he says, destroy this temple in three days, and in three, uh, and in three days I will raise it up again. And then John says, he wasn't talking about the building itself, but he was talking about his own death and resurrection. So the scene is set. The scene is set. We have Christ's testimony as a reason to put a fence around the deity of Christ. Not only did the scriptures say it to us, but the word of life, Jesus himself, said it to us. So the resurrection is the important thing here. And lastly, why did Jesus die in the first place? Why was it that he died in the first place? Was it for anything that he did wrong? Was it because he did something that was against the law? Was it because he tried to usurp the authority of the Jews? Or even the Romans? Did he in some way incite rebellion? Well, the answer is no. In fact, when placed in front of Pilate, Pilate said, I find no fault in you. No fault whatsoever. So why on earth did he die? What is the reasoning behind this uh, execution? You know what John 10 tells us? Very, very plainly, why Jesus had to die. You see, they were about to stone him. He'd been preaching on the Good Shepherd. And he'd been talking about the quite a number of things. And they were about to stone him. You know, and I, I, you, I can't imagine the scene, but here they are with these stones in their hands. And he says, wait a minute. Stop for a second. Can you give me two minutes just to say something? Why are you killing me? What, if, what work have I done that you are intent on destroying me? And this is what the Jews said to him. Well, let's read this, the old passage, chapter 10. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him again. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Why are you doing it? What have I done wrong? And this is what the Jews answered. For a good work, we do not stone you. But for blasphemy. And because you... Being a man, make you a self God. You being a man, make yourself God. That's why I'm be stoning you. That's why we want to see the back of you. That's why we want you dead. Jesus was crucified because he claimed to be God. That's the bottom line. Nothing else is important at all. You know, and Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, never once tried to justify himself. Never called out his innocence. Protested his innocence. No, not during his arrest. 
You know, we know the story of his arrest. His captors were lying on the floor, unable to do any, lift a finger to do anything for themselves, let alone grab him and take him off, kicking and screaming. But he presented himself to them. Take me, leave these go, take me. So his arrest, he didn't try to justify himself. Not during the disgrace of his trials. You know, as he stood there and listened to people say lie after lie after lie after lie. Didn't say a word. Pilate was astonished. Are you hearing what these people are saying about you? And he never said a word. No, not in his punishments. When he had the crown of thorns on his head. When the whip ripped through his back 39 times. When he was stripped naked and mocked and scorned and punched and his beard pulled out what did he say? nothing nothing whatsoever no not during his humiliating walk to Golgotha with that heavy beam on his broken back never said a word never told anyone who he was or how innocent he was just walked to the cross not even when he hung on the cross. Not even when he hung on the cross. He was, as Isaiah says, done before his shearers. So who, who is going to justify him? Who is going to uphold his claims? The crowds. You know, these crowds had benefited from his every move. There were people in these crowds that had ate the bread and the fish. There were people in these crowds that had seen the lame raised, the dead raised. Were they going to say anything? Well, listen. And those who passed by blasphemed him. Wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. You know, it seems that when Christ was hanging on that awful tree, the crowds didn't want to know. But there was one other that didn't want to know. Even his own father didn't want to know. But forsook him. Turned his back upon him. He wasn't going to uphold his claims. He wasn't going to justify him. He wasn't going to tell him that this is the son of God. Leave him go. No, he turned his back and went. And left him on his own in the dark. He wasn't going to build a fence. At this point, he left his son go into oblivion. You know, we have scriptural reasons to put this fence around the deity of Christ. We have Christ's own testimony as a reason to put this fence around the Christ, around the identity of Christ. But it seems that on the cross, there is no reason for us to put a fence up at all but for history it's only history that can put the finishing touches to this fence scripture have built it a little Christ's testimony has built it a little but history is going to put the finishing touches on it you know imagine the bated breath on the first Easter Sunday morning before it got light Everyone with a vested interest just watching the tomb with its guard and its pitiable seal 
Was it going to remain intact? Was that stone going to stay there? Like stones usually do. Was that seal going to remain intact? Like seals usually do. Was those guards going to keep everybody out? Like guards usually do. Thus destroying the validity of the scriptures. The scriptures were wrong. He didn't rise again. Thus destroying the claims of Christ. He was an imposter. He didn't even rise from the dead. Just a pathetic fleshly frame like the rest of us. Or was life itself going to burst through the craggy skin of that rock? Was death itself about to die? Was sin going to loose its icy grip upon humanity? Well, let's listen to a sermon. I know about you, but I love listening to sermons. And Peter's is one of the best that I've ever, ever heard. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you all by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know. He's speaking to those who knew. Him being delivered. The word there is betrayed. Him being betrayed by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You are taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death whom God has raised up. God has raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible for that he should be held by it it was not possible why? because he's the son of God because he is life itself because he is the creator because he is the holy one because he is the redeemer because he is the son of God the scriptures vindicated when that rock burst uh, forth Christ's reputation upheld when that body came back to life God had vindicated his son and raised him from the dead everything proved the satisfaction of God's righteousness of God's love, of God's grace of God's justice all satisfied and culminating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself going back to the book of of Hebrews when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having been resurrected having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they for to which of the angels did he ever say you are my son you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world. He says. Let all the angels of God worship him. And all the angels he says. Who makes the angels spirits. And his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son he says. You were thrown O God. Is forever and forever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness therefore God you are God 
has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all of your companions. That second, bringing the firstborn into the world, is the resurrection. The first, of course, is Bethlehem, when he brought him into the world and says, uh, what did he say? Today, you are my son. That's what he said when he seen the baby born in Bethlehem. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I am your father. You are my son. And then he goes on um, to the other bit. There's that bit. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world, this is the resurrection he's talking about. He says that all the angels of God worship him. But to the son he says, You were thrown, O God is forever and forever vindicated. The scriptures, brilliant. The testimony of Christ, wonderful. They both come to make this fence a possibility. And then there's the final seal of approval. God himself raised him from the dead. Thus um, fulfilling every scripture. Thus upholding every claim that Jesus made. And now we can say of a surety and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And I'm sure the Lord would add His blessing to that wonderful portion of His holy word. Amen. Amen.